This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast heard in 100 countries around the world and now ranked among the top 200 podcasts by Chartable globally. On today's episode of News and Views, we bring you a newsmaker interview with Patrick Goddard, president of Brightline Trains. I interviewed him recently at the Palm Beach Brightline train station. A great interview from America's only privately held high-speed rail service. We also take a look at the news right now. Some big headline news coming out of Washington and around the country. The American Public Transportation Association recently held their APTA legislative conference in Washington, D.C. with over 600 people there. Lots of high-profile speakers heard from many of us who were there that it was one of the best, if not the best, legislative summit in quite a while. And that's because probably there's a lot of money going out right now. One of the things that was announced that was the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration, has awarded over $400 million in grants to 70 projects in 39 states now to modernize and electrify buses, to make bus systems and routes more reliable and improve safety. The grants will help dozens of communities buy electric buses that will reduce or eliminate greenhouse gas emissions, promote cleaner air, and help address the climate concerns folks have. U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg said these grants will help people in communities large and small get to work, get to school, and access the services they need. These funds come from the historic bipartisan infrastructure law that is bringing modern buses to communities across America. FTA received more than $2.5 billion in funding requests, more than five times the amount of funding available under the previous law, and an additional $5.1 billion in formula and competitive grant funding is authorized under the new Grants for Buses and Bus Facilities program over the next five years, meaning more projects can be funded. Speaking of electric buses, California's Antelope Valley Transit Authority, their board, along with the California Air Resources Board, recently hosted a celebration recognizing the Transit Authority for becoming the first all-electric transit agency in North America. They received their 20th electric MCI coach for their commuter routes. The addition of these buses to their fleet of BYD zero-emission buses enabled the agency to place into service 100% a zero-emission transit fleet. The chairman of the board, Marvin Chris, said, Long before we saw an electric bus rolling down the streets of Antelope Valley, the AVTA board envisioned a future with a greener and technologically superior transit system serving the citizens in this area. So their current fleet of 100% zero emission transit fleet consists of 57 BYD zero emission buses, 10 green power EV star micro transit vans, and now 20 MCI battery electric commuter coaches. Congratulations. They were able to purchase these with the help of state funding, including a $28.5 million from the Transit and Inner City Rail Capital Program administered by Caltrans and the California State Transportation Agency. Other news around the industry includes back into Washington, the U.S. Senate passed a resolution introduced by Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky on March 15th to repeal the federal travel mask mandate on public transportation. Despite the resolution succeeding in the Senate, it is likely to be opposed by President Biden. But it was a bipartisan bill and got 57 votes with eight Democrats voting in favor and only one Republican voting against it. And that's Senator Mitt Romney from Utah. Uh, APTA itself, the American Public Transportation Association, has sent a letter to the White House on March 2nd encouraging the administration to reevaluate the current CDC requirement that all passengers wear masks while using public transportation. And they wanted them to allow the mandate to lapse after it expired on March 18th. But guess what? You probably already heard they didn't. 
They extended it for another month. The TSA did, and they're going to be working with the CDC to inform what they're calling a revised policy framework for when and under what circumstances masks should be required in the public transportation corridor going forward. I recently rode on Amtrak and it was being enforced there as well as in the train station. I went to Boston for the Smart Transit Conference just last week. And uh, it was a great conference, by the way, a privately a private conference, you know, run in a for-profit company, but a great conference. Steve Poftak was there, the general manager of MBTA. I was able to interview him for an upcoming episode of Transit Unplugged. There were a lot of great sessions and good information shared there. But again, it is still in force in public transit. And now finally on news, two great CEOs named this week, Pace Suburban Bus, which is one of the largest bus systems in America in Arlington Heights, Illinois, outside of Chicago. They've appointed our friend Melinda Metzger as the new executive director. Metzger, who's led the agency on an interim capacity since December, has previously served in top roles as the agency's head of operations, including general manager and chief operating officer. Congratulations to our friend Melinda Metzger in being named as executive director of one of America's largest bus services, Pace Suburban Bus. And our fr- our, another friend of ours, Jessica Mefford Miller, uh, has been named as the new chief executive officer in Phoenix, Arizona for Valley Metro, following Scott Smith's retirement announcement in the summer of this past year. Medford Miller joins the agency with 15 years of public transit experience in the St. Louis, Missouri region, where she most recently served as executive director for Metro Transit. Congratulations to both these women for their uh, selection as the head of CEO and executive director of two of America's premier transit agencies. And that's it for our headline news on today's episode. Now stay tuned for our interview with Patrick Goddard, who is president of Brightline Trains. Patrick Goddard, president of Brightline Trains. Great to be with you here in your West Palm Beach awesome station, man. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for visiting us. Absolutely. Well, we are on a tour of Florida talking about some of the best public transit and mobility options. And of course, we can't do it without talking to Brightline. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, great to get introduced people to this. A lot of people have an image in their mind of what train travel is like in America, and it's typically not this. Tell us some about Brightline Trains and your role there. So Brightline Trains is the first privately owned intercity passenger rail in the United States in over 100 years. The last guy to do this was Henry Flagler on these very tracks at the end of the 19th century. So what we're really doing is Brightline is connecting cities that are 250 to 400 mile distances. And we're in the process of really looking at corridors around the country, but we're starting right here in Florida. Florida is a very interesting market for high-speed rail. You've got a population of about 20 million people. About half of those people live along our our tracks. And there's about 400 million trips between South Florida and Central Florida every year. That's a lot of trips. There's a lot of congestion. And we're looking to provide another mode of transportation for people that's more eco-friendly, faster, safer, more efficient. You can be more productive. So we're really excited to be introducing this service into Florida. Tell us about how fast these trains go. They're considered kind of higher speed rail, maybe not full high speed. So we travel at a top speed of 125 miles an hour. And we travel as, you know, I think our lowest speed through the corridor is about 79 miles an hour through some of the more congested or dense, more densely populated areas. So you're talking about a three hour travel time from Miami to Orlando. uh, And that includes several stops picking people up in South Florida on the way. How did the pandemic affect the rollout of service here? You know, 
when we shut down in March of 2020, we had already learned a lot from the 14 or 15 months that we had been open. So we took that time to apply those learnings. Uh, we built bars in our stations. Nobody wants to get a, you know, sit down and have a beer at a cafe. So we created bars, we created autonomous markets. We improved our, our safety protocols as it relates to safety and hygiene. We were already way ahead of everybody else, I think, in, in, in that regard. But we took that time to, to make improvements. The biggest improvement we made and the biggest realization we had while we were operating was uh, a train trip is really the intermediate part of somebody's journey. So we recognized that we, if we really wanted to give people a car-free or car-optional lifestyle, we needed to be able to get them from where they were to where they needed to get to, not just from train station to train station. So we introduced a service called Brightline Plus. Brightline Plus is a door-to-door uh, -door service that's powered by a fleet of eco-friendly vehicles uh, accessible through our app. So you can actually book from where you are to where you need to go all in one trip, all one transaction, all one price. We'll take you to the station, you'll get on the train, you'll get off the train, you'll get, get into one of our vehicles and we'll take you where you need to go. So that was one of the biggest innovations that we developed and implemented. And, and, and when we reopened in November, we launched that right when we launched and it's been phenomenal. About 30, 40% of people use Brightline Plus to get to and from the station. And what's the current status of the train service out in California between Vegas and LA? That's right. So here in Florida, you know, we're very focused on finishing our construction up to Orlando, which will be complete uh, by the end of next year, by the end of this year. So we'll be opening that service in the early part of 2023. We're also adding additional stations in South Florida in Boca and Aventura, which are really two locations equidistant to our existing stations of Miami, Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach. So that's the focus right now. We're also working on developing an expansion of that system from the Orlando airport, which is our terminus in, in Orlando, all the way out to Tampa with a stop in Disney. So that's the work that we're doing in Florida. Out West, we, there's a corridor that's been really being studied for over a decade. Uh, it was called Desert Express. It's now called Brightline West. Uh, Brightline West takes people from LA to Vegas. Another incredible market for intercity high-speed rail. There's about 55 million trips between LA and Vegas annually, and it all travels along I-15 where there's as little as four lanes. In some areas, you can experience pretty horrendous congestion. That's a four to five hour drive. We'll be taking people from LA to Vegas in about 90 minutes. So we're very excited about that. That is in the design development stage, permitting stage. We are optimistic that we're ready to put a shovel in the ground on that sometime later this year. Tell us about the current state of rail safety. So safety is our top priority at Brightline. Anybody who's in, a transport in the transportation business has to be focused on safety. What I can tell you is we rebuilt this entire railroad, all the grade crossings, you know, the infrastructure we've invested, we'll have invested up to about $5 billion by the time we're finished with this system. So a really meaningful investment and we actually exceed the FRA standards for safety. But, you know, safety is a community effort. It's not just about the railroad, you know, incidents on railroads don't necessarily occur because the railroad is unsafe or the equipment is unsafe. It's typically, it's typically people who circumvent the safety equipment that we've put in place um, and put their own lives in danger. So trespassing, driving around grade crossings, those types of things. So we, we think about that in the same way as we think about any problem that we uh, uh, face here at Brightline. And we've, bring a, we've brought a lot of innovation to the table, including cameras with you know, AI, use of drones, fencing, landscaping, signage, ambassadors at, at corridors. We have a significant education campaign. We work with municipalities on enforcement. It really does take a village and it takes a lot of effort to keep the community safe from these, the, uh, this infrastructure asset. But in spite of that, you know, traveling by train is the safest way for people to travel. 
And people have this misperception that train travel, you know, may not be safe. Train travel is very safe. You know, what you experience is the community not behaving in a responsible way around the railroad. And that's what we're always working to improve on. Does Brightline Trains connect in with local transit? Yeah, so Paul, as you know, transportation is an ecosystem. We view ourselves as the, as the spine that connects all of the major cities throughout the state of Florida. But then again, we have to interface with the communities in, in which we operate to ensure that we can feed our system and we can distribute people from our system. So that's something that we're always focused on with both the public sector and the private sector. And ex a great example, I think, of an intermodal hub is our train station in Miami. So in Miami, we connect with Tri-Rail, Metro-Rail, and the Metro Mover, which collectively carry about 30 million people a year around the Miami area. We're also connected with bus systems here in West Palm Beach and in Fort Lauderdale. And then we work with all the private providers. So in addition to Brightline Plus, which is our offering, we've got all these public transportation opportunities. We've got scooter charging stations. We've got partnerships with rideshare folks. So as I said, it's about an ecosystem system that enables this car-free lifestyle. Our experience here in Florida has been, since we've announced our stations and started running our service, um, Everyone's starting to understand the utility of an infrastructure asset like this and how they can connect to it. So we're working with all the airports, with the ports, uh, and with those uh, transit agencies to have better integration, not just from a physical logistics perspective, but also from a technology perspective. It's not enough to just connect things physically and have pickup spots. You also need to connect it from a digital perspective and give people the ability to plan, pay for, and travel, you know, with, with an easy transaction. So really our app is starting to evolve into more of a mobility as a service application where you're able to plan your entire journey. Right now, you're just, we're just incorporating Brightline Plus, but as we evolve, we're working, for example, with Metrorail in Miami to be able to use your Brightline QR code to access Metrorail, right? So these are things that are going to enable uh, a car optional or a car-free lifestyle. What are the plans for the future of Brightline trains? The United States is about 50 years behind Europe and Asia in the context of high-speed rail, which is a travesty. The good news is there's a lot of corridors throughout the country that I think are suitable for high-speed rail, many of which have existing infrastructure or existing transportation corridors that can be built upon. We think there is anywhere between six and 10 major corridors that connect cities that are too far to drive too short to fly throughout the United States and Canada. So, you know, we're focused on Florida right now. LA to Vegas is next, but we're evaluating additional corridors. We'd love to have uh, a half dozen of these things or so over the next decade connecting cities in the way that we're going to connect Miami to Orlando. Patrick Goddard, president of Brightline Trains, thank you so much for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged TV. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Your passenger experience doesn't begin when riders board your vehicle. It starts long before that as riders look for information on your system. Does your passenger information provide a fantastic rider experience? Here are some tips. Most riders and future riders will search for information online on either phones or computers. Make sure your website is easy to read with clear passenger information on routes, fares, and schedules above the fold. That means at the top of the page. When people are looking for information needed to ride your system, they don't need your mission statement or the time and date of your next board meeting. That stuff goes at the bottom. Is your website optimized for the best phone viewing experience? The best practices also apply here with a focus on keeping information at the top of the screen. 
I also recommend using bright, clear buttons that lead to more detailed information, especially on phone-optimized pages where space is limited. Finally, for those riders who access information on your system by non-digital means, how concise and durable can you make your printed pieces? I found great success with business card and postcard-sized printed collateral, printed on heavy stock. Riders can keep this information in their pocket or wallet for easy reference. If you'd like to talk more about best practices in passenger information or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director for Terra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about kindness, leadership, and mentorship with the hopes it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Leadership. As today's guest commented, the pandemic and the challenges it posed for the industry allowed them to take a pause, study lessons learned, and look positively at the future on how to enhance, improve, and apply those learnings. That is just another example of the leadership and mentorship within our industry, and folks continually looking to make transit better. Someone asked me recently how transit agencies create kindness in the areas they serve. Definitely a loaded question to ask someone like myself, but I simply said take a look at the leaders and executives, and you will see kindness in action in many of these examples. Transit is the great equalizer. It provides people with opportunity. If we look at the challenges the last two years has posed, transit kept moving. It kept providing essential service, and it kept providing daily examples of frontline workers that selflessly serve just doing their job. Those are samples of kindness, simply doing what we do in transit. There was also no shortage of amazing examples of community outreach and the pivot by many agencies to help other folks in their communities. As we are slowly swinging back into live conferences across North America, it is, of course, great again to have the opportunity to meet many of our leaders and peers in the industry and share these stories of the last couple years. But my challenge to all of you is that the next conference you're lucky enough to attend, look up a local charity, commit a random act of kindness, and keep those contributions from transit coming. Keep kindness cool. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Talk soon. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged News and Views. Hopefully you enjoyed that great interview and feedback from Alea and Mike and our new segment. And as I mentioned on the opening news segment, I recently, just last week, was in Boston to speak at the Smart Transit Conference. And I spoke about kind of what are the hot, some of the hot trends that are happening right now in the industry. And I wanted to share with you for five or 10 minutes about what I'm seeing in the industry right now as the future of public transportation. And again, a little bit more about what I learned in my recent trip to Dubai. Most of you know the the impact that COVID had on our transit industry with ridership down. And what we're seeing right now still across the industry is still a great, uh, many people have not come back onto commuter rail. One of the things that was interesting from this conference that I learned, because it has primarily in the past been a rail-related conference, is talk to people about how ridership is uh, is handling now in commuter rail across the country. And Steve Poftak, the, the GM, who will be our guest in a few weeks on this show, we actually have him scheduled uh, on April 27th, the uh, recording that I recently just did with him there in Boston. But he talked about how they've shifted the commuter rail service, which is run under contract by Keolis, away from being just a commuter rail service, where we are just bringing folks in in the early a.m. and the uh, late afternoon back home 
to more of an all-day service. They've added in midday service. And what they're seeing, he said, is ridership picking up in the midday. People are using the trains to come into town during the middle of the day. There's many people whose job hours have changed. They maybe come in for meetings, let's say, on Tuesday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., which, of course, are very different commuter patterns than what they might have been doing before the pandemic when they were trying to get into work by 8 or 9 in the morning and leave at 4 to 6 in the afternoon. Now these new patterns are calling for commuter services to adjust their service offerings. In addition, folks are coming into town now that the museums and other things are opening up and shops are opening up. So they're offering more service. And he also said weekend service has seen tremendous increase in ridership. As a matter of fact, on seven of their 14 commuter rail lines on the weekends, they're now experiencing greater ridership than they did pre-pandemic. And so again, it's a great lesson for us to learn that we need to be aware of the market that we're serving and adjusting our routes accordingly. And that's actually what's happening around the industry right now as part of the global transit trends. In addition to making public transit really serve public policy, such as you know creating more equitable and inclusive environments in our cities, focusing on environmental stewardship through electrification and zero emission buses. And also a third one, which I would suggest is important, strengthening hiring and career development using our public transit agencies not just to hire folks and train them to become a bus driver, but really turning them into job training centers. There's so many high-tech jobs now at our transit agencies, especially in maintenance and other and other places, you know, HR, finance, IT, procurement, legal, PR, all the uh, service planning, all the things that go on behind the scenes of a transit agency. We need to really position our agencies to the policymakers as job training centers, giving people the high-tech skills they need to operate in today's environment. I think those are three ways that we can shift how we're measured. So the only KPI that matters isn't just ridership, this false idol of ridership that really came down during the COVID pandemic, but we can show that our transit agencies can do more. It's what Phil Washington was trying to do before he left LA, right? By starting a school there. It's what Nat Ford is doing in Jacksonville. I just visited him down there uh, to film for our TV show, an upcoming episode in Jacksonville, Florida, where you know they have created a test and learn facility for autonomous vehicles and are bringing in young people, children to learn during summer camps and day camps and college students to learn that, hey, public transportation is really becoming the high tech jobs of tomorrow. It's the future jobs that we're creating here. And so I think those are things that we can do in our transit agencies, and we should focus on and draw attention to as executives things that we're doing. But also, we need to redesign our routes and add in more frequent service so that folks will not need to have a bus schedule. (laughs) They don't need to look anywhere, figure anything out. We need to also make our services, to be honest with you, easier to use. Um, You know, my wife and I were just down in Florida and she said to me one day I was out filming and she said, I would have loved to have ridden the bus, but I wasn't quite sure where it goes, how often it goes, what the fare is. You know, I don't know really anything about it and there's no information at the bus stop. And so, you know, my friend Clinton Forbes, the CEO of Palm Tran, told me one way he's addressing that is he's putting a QR code on every bus stop sign. So that if people come up to a bus stop sign, they put their phone up there and, you know, tap on it and it will take you to a website where you can see this is the route you're on. This is where it goes. This is the schedule or how frequent the bus service goes. Here's how much it costs. Here's how you pay. All the information that a casual user or a visitor to the community that wouldn't know how to use it can get that information they need. We need to 
you know, get out of the forest so we can see all the trees. Sometimes we're so insular in how we operate our services. We think, you know, well, everybody knows how to use this. Well, no, they don't. And a lot of people who have never ridden transit don't have a clue about how to ride it and are very apprehensive to get on a bus or a train when they're not really sure where it's going, when it's going to come back to make sure they can get back home, how long the routes go. You know, if I go see a movie and the movie's over at nine o'clock, you know, am I going to be able to get a bus ride back? We need to make that information very clear to our passengers and to people who potentially could become passengers. Once they try it a few times and see how easy it is, you know, they'll want to ride it more often. Like when folks go to Washington, D.C., right? You figure out how to ride the metro system so you can get downtown because there really is not much parking down there. So you can see the monuments, et cetera. And once you've ridden it once or twice, you're like, oh, okay, I see how this works. But it's, it takes a lot of effort the first time you come into a city or the first time you try to ride transit. Now that fuel prices are going through the roof, it's a great opportunity for transit agencies to reach out to folks. Just prior to the pandemic in Boston at the MBTA, some of their folks up there had a great idea and they're doing it now. They're advertising on the fuel pumps, you know, the little uh, video like TV channels that are on some of the gas pumps now and you can buy ads. They're buying ads on those gas pumps and saying, hey, try transit. Great idea. And then really the sixth big global trend I'm seeing right now is the expansion of demand response and microtransit. Everywhere across the country, uh, people are saying, just like Clinton Forbes told me, it was the only part of his service that grew during the pandemic, which makes sense, right? It is, uh, it's great service. Uh, and some places like Dubai are not just using like the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, but they've actually integrated taxi cabs. And I wanted to just talk to you about that for a minute. That's one of the things I really took away from Dubai was that uh, the transit agency there, Ahmad Barozian, my friend who is CEO, shared with me, and we'll have it on an upcoming episode of Transit Unplugged TV, really how they've integrated taxi cabs into their overall transit network. The, t- the transit agency actually owns almost half the fleet of taxi cabs in the city. They have, I think, like 5,500 cabs out of the 11,000 some odd cabs in the city. And the others are privately owned, but they have them all integrated into the transit network. They can be dispatched from the Transit Operations Control Center. There's great customer tools on the app, the Customer Connect they have there that's actually provided by my company, Trapeze. They do live translation with artificial intelligence. If you don't speak the same language as the driver, it'll do that. You can share with your driver where you want to go by using Google Maps. You can also share your live location and taxi details for security reasons. You can have secure online payment. And the new tech that Matthew Brownlee was telling me about that's coming there is phenomenal. Think about 11,000 taxi cab drivers having to change keys a couple times a day to the next driver. You know, now they may not have, they're not going to have to do that. Now with their smartphone app, if it's their shift, it'll show them where their cab is parked. So a driver from the previous shift can park wherever he wants or she wants. The new driver looks at that, figures out where the car is, walks over there, uses the phone to open the car. <laughs> and if it's if it's his or her shift, they can use their thumbprint or facial recognition to start the car and to drive it. Amazing, the things that are going on. And then in the cabs now, you know, they have multiple cameras so they can check and make sure the driver's not using a phone or smoking or fatigued or distracted. When I was riding the cabs in Dubai, they even will tell the drivers, slow down, slow down, slow down. When they're speeding, it'll check their harsh braking, cornering, all this kind of stuff. So taxi cabs really have been integrated fully into the network there, unlike I've seen in many cities anywhere else in the world. Certainly not here in North America, where, you know, when I used to work for Mark Joseph in Baltimore, you know, we had 700 cabs, yellow cabs, but I worked in the bus side. I was general manager of the bus operations. And, you know, we didn't really interact with them at all. 
there in Dubai, they've shown that you can use taxi cabs for your first and last mile solution. And and also really as a form of microtransit. Cabs have taken a beating during the COVID pandemic. And it's so they're looking for more business. And if transit agencies are creatively engaging them, there may be opportunities for us to kind of bring them in as part of the aggregated mobility services in a city that the transit agency helps oversee. That's basically what I shared about in large part at the conference. And thank you for the opportunity to share it with you today on Transit Unplugged and for staying with us each and every week here on the world's leading transit executive podcast. I'm Paul Comfort. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views. By the time you're listening to this on Wednesday, Paul and I will be at Think Transit down in Fort Worth. It's the last day of the conference. I know we'll be recording some things while we're there. Next week on Transit Unplugged in Depth, we have Darren Kettle of Metrolink in California talking with Paul. If you have questions, comments, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.